Alright, so as we go through church history, one last time we want to talk about the ripple effects of stuff going on after World War I with religion, but not just religion, but all sorts of different things, including economics. When I was when I was young, up until I got into into college, I really hated the concept of economics. I always thought that's the purview of business people, and business people struck me as basically evil. So it was not my sort of thing at all. <clears throat> and then I had a really good economics prof in in, in college, and he said, you, "You do realize that this drives everything." I'm not entirely sure I agree with with this, this assessment, but. Having taken that class, I'm like, oh, I see his argument. It is that in, in our in our world, how you look at money, how you look at economics, what the factors are, it really does drive a lot of political decisions, a lot of military decisions, a lot of personal decisions with things. And so I had a, a much deeper, richer appreciation for economics after taking that class. And at this point in history, yeah, economics is kind of huge in terms of what was happening. For instance, 1929, stock markets crashed, right? Kind of important, changed things for everybody. I was born the next year. You were born the next year, so you were born in the ripple effects of all this. And I do mean that plural. And most people don't realize that the London Stock Exchange crashed in September, and then the Wall Street Stock Exchange crashed in October. So it wasn't just an American phenomenon. The entire Western world just went kush. Everything fell apart um, because so much of the economies of the world were based on, well, speculation. Um, what do I mean by speculation? I, I, I shouldn't assume that everybody understands how the stock market works. How things are going to happen is what they're betting on. Right, and so you invest your money on what you think things are going to be like in the future, and then businesses use that money, you're buying stocks in those businesses, they use that money to try to do stuff. And so you're constantly hoping that you are going to spend $10 and because you spent $10, that business is going to make you $20, right? It, it's just always going to go up and up and up and up and up. And so whole countries put all of their investments and everything in you know, the dot-com bubble kind of thing. It's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? There will never be an end to the growth of the Internet. You know, people will always be investing in all this kind of stuff until, until it kind of plateaus. And then everything falls apart. So it's, it's, kind of, it's almost impossible nowadays because we have so many safeguards and, and countries diversify themselves and their portfolios so much. It's almost hard to imagine how huge this is from a modern perspective. I mean, Cliff's probably got the best, the, the best opportunity to go, well, I remember. So I, mean, I, can, I can try to figure this out. Folks that bought their house a few years before and it dropped overnight. You know, and, uh, oh, yeah. So it, think, okay, maybe that's the way to think of it. Think about you buy a house at $180,000, and a year later it's worth $20,000. You owe $120,000 still on it, on a house that's only worth $20,000. Now picture that in every aspect of your life, in every part of the nation's economy. It's like nothing's worth anything right now. Thousands of people lost fortunes overnight. And this isn't... This is one of these things where it's not just the poor people or middle class. You go, everybody, everybody lost everything. Uh, this is actually a really nice little car. This is a nice car. It's like hundred dollars. I'll buy this car. I, I, I got I'm desperate for money. The basic idea being, you can't reasonably expect the cost that you wish to expend producing your goods to stay steady, while the cost that you wish other people to spend 
on purchasing your goods to rise. I want to spend X amount of dollars all the time and have that never rise. But I want you to spend X plus $2, and then next week I want you to spend X plus $3, and next week I want you to spend X plus $5. And I'm not just going to invest at X, because the money that I'm making off of that, now I'm investing over in Cliff's scheme over here. So all my money is in all these investments, and I keep expecting everybody to spend more on something I'm not spending more on. That works, right? You know, at some point it doesn't, and once it doesn't, once people either physically cannot spend it or say, I don't intend to spend that, and stocks start going down, especially if all stocks start going down and all your money is in stocks, there are precious few people that have, that have the, the good fortune or the, the intelligence to go, I think I'm selling all my stocks right now. So I'm only going to lose 20% of, my, of, my, of, of, of everything that I've got. I'm going to lose 20%. It's going to, I'm hoping that this is just a divot. But some smart people said, I don't think it's going to be a divot. I think it's going to be a plunge. So they sell everything. They take a huge bath, but at least they've got money. But what happens if people sell a lot of stocks? What happens? Price goes down, and nobody wants to buy the stocks because they're like, well, of course not. They're plummeting. It was $20 per share yesterday. Now it's $15. What if at the end of the day it's $5? Do I really want to start buying stocks? Maybe I should sell mine now. So everybody starts selling all their stocks, and everything falls apart, and all of your goods and all of your stocks become worthless. So suicide and homelessness skyrocket. The rates of these things. People are this. When you hear about people throwing themselves out of buildings, you go, "Yep, that really happened lots and lots and lots of times." Um, an amazing number of people were homeless. Everybody started doing runs on banks because they're like, "Well, banks are going under because banks are also." basing themselves on the, on the speculative stock market. Because your bank, at least back in the day, didn't have all of your money. I mean, any any given moment, if 400 people each put $100 in there, you'd say, oh, well, clearly, there's $40,000 sitting in that bank building right now. No, there may be $1,000 sitting in that bank building right now. And the rest of it is out in stock portfolios, which are now worthless. So... 39 people have no money. The first person to go and get their $1,000 out, or, or, or the first couple of people, those are the only ones that get any money. So everybody starts doing these runs on the bank to get their money out before all the money is gone. Because the banks are going under right and left. Again, you ever see, you ever see It's a Wonderful Life? Yes. Yeah, set during this era. This idea of going, the only way we won't go under is if everybody just takes out what they need. You know, we can get through this if everybody just, so what's the problem? What's, how is this going to cause more problems if everybody says, I want my $421.32. That's how much I got in here, and that's how much I need. What happens if everybody does that? Right. And so what do they do? They close, which makes the people on the bank next door go, oh, I need to get my money out, which makes that bank close, which means everybody starts going to all the banks, and all the banks go, no, 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 no. You can get all your, your money in like six months, if we can just weather this. If everybody tries to get even half of their money now, nobody's getting anything. But if you just chill, we can get through this. How good is humanity at chilling? <laughs> Especially when you feel like there's going to be a problem. Okay, you remember the whole Y2K scare thing and how that was nothing? Why was it nothing? Hundreds people working overnight to make sure that it wasn't a big deal. 
And so people spent years working overnight all the time to make sure that there wasn't a hiccup. And there were still hiccups. There were still tons of hiccups all over the place. Just nothing huge. And then, of course, everybody afterwards goes, oh, I don't understand what the big deal was. You know, it would have been absolutely huge, except for the valiant work of several people. I want to give a million dollars to the guy that went, oh, my goodness, do you know what's going to happen? <laughs> it's like, we need to do something, like 10 years before. Um, but, but one of the main things, because I remember talking to somebody, and I'm like, it, you know, they've been working on this. I, I talked with a, a buddy of mine that worked at Walmart, and, and he said, we're going to have some hiccups in, in shipping. It's just, it's going to happen. Uh, and so we're, we're probably going to get like meat products three or four days later than we should. There's probably going to be a gap in, in some of the breads and stuff that, like that that we get. So anything that is perishable, there's going to be a little bit of a stutter step with. But then everything should be fine. And I said, what happens if everybody says, wait, there's no meat? Wait, there's no meat? And so they all start storming and, and wanting meat. And he goes, that's what I'm actually genuinely concerned about. Because if everybody takes a minor hiccup badly, everything could go extremely badly overnight. So he's like, even though everything is basically going to be okay, he's like, I, I still have a generator in my basement, and I got tons of water and all that kind of stuff. He said, because if it starts to go badly, there could be a tipping point, and it could go very, very badly, very bad, you know, very quickly. It's easy for us, you know, 16 years, 17 years later to go, oh, no, 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 that was, it really, it's one of these things, the only thing you have to fear is fear itself. By the way, people get fear really easily. So all it takes is for, for it to, to be a tipping point. And of course, uh, another friend of mine was talking about all the water and all the food and the, the generator he had in his basement. And I, and I said, did, did you stockpile weapons? He said, well, no. So you're going to shoot people that are going to take your stuff? And he said, well, no. I said, then why do I need to take anything? Why do I need to stockpile anything? I'm coming to your place. And he's, he's like, no. Yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. Think it through. All right. Wait a few But isn't that true? All these people stockpiling stuff, I'm like, you better bunker yourself in. If there is enough of a problem like you just said, I'm sorry, women stole bread from their children's mouths and watch them starve at Auschwitz. If people are scared and if people are starving, they'll take your stuff. They'll kill you and they'll take everything you have. The idea of saying, I'm going to live in fear, but not militantly, is idiotic. It's like, kill or don't be afraid like this. Anything in between is pointless. So yeah, actually, I was trying to, to kill the fear, actually. And it actually worked, by the way, because my friend was just like, good point, party. You could stockpile the share with people. You sure could. But if you're not planning that, you haven't really thought that through. Um, so in America, most of the blame was put, and, and I would argue mostly wrongly, on Herbert Hoover. Because he had kind of this, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to regulate everything, I'm kind of I'm going to let the economy regulate itself. Which isn't necessarily horrible, but didn't help this situation at all. And so uh, people made these ramshackle uh, towns made of like boxes and cardboard and things like that, and they call them Hoovervilles all around the United States. And could you imagine having your family move into a lean-to like this? Could you imagine what that was like? It's really hard for us to picture that, other than in movies 
which means it's really hard for us to picture that because it's it's not the same thing. Um, but uh, part of this, tens of thousands of Americans, specifically veterans from World War One, they call them the Bonus Army, um, marched on Washington saying, "We need cash payment for our, our military payment uh, pensions." The military promised us anytime we wanted to, we could cash out our pension. We have to take a bit of a bite, but we can do it. So my family is starving. We need our cash. Much like the run on the bank, you can see why that would be a, a difficult thing. And so Hoover and all those people said, you, you, can't, you can't do that. We can't, we can't give you your money. And they're like, we were willing to fight and die for our country. You promised us that we could cash out our pension anytime we wanted. We're cashing it out now. Because again, if people can be scared, they will tend to get scared. And once people get scared, they make stupid choices. So Hoover called the police in to break up the crowds, including women and children and things. Uh, violence erupted. Several officers got injured. Several protesters got injured. Two protesters got killed, which escalated the violence. So the protesters started arming themselves to attack the police. So Hoover called in the United States Army to fight against U.S. Army veterans. So, Army Chief of Staff, General Douglas MacArthur, if that name means anything to you, led troops, which also included officers Dwight Eisenhower and George Patton, to bring in uh, cavalry and tanks and tear gas to actively break it up, Patton being in charge of the tanks. Public morale is at an all-time low, if you can imagine. I mean, beyond just... People are literally starving in the streets, families not knowing how to get bread for their children, etc. A slice of salami, how do we get this five ways so that we can all have something today? By the way, the United States Army is shooting war veterans. This is a bad time. During this time, the Catholic Worker Movement was founded. Begun by activists uh, Peter Mora and Dorothy Day, uh, the group emphasized the fact that the church should be reaching out to everybody, the absolute equality of everybody, men, women, poor, rich, um, uh, black, white, doesn't matter. Everybody should be reached out to. And so they found themselves connecting with the communists. They're like, you know, capitalism isn't really working. Um, so when they saw the papal states kind of go belly up, when they, uh, remember last week where we talked about the Pope losing all of his political power and things, they were very happy with that. They're like, good, down with the power elite. It's what it's supposed to be. And yet, at the same time, even though they hated big church hierarchies, they, they loved Catholic theology. So they're extremely Catholic, pro-Catholic, anti-church. Pro-Catholic theology, anti-pope, anti-church hierarchies. Well, it would work better in Protestantism. You could be really good Baptist, but hate your pastor. You could do that. Catholic theology is really let me say it this way. Catholic ecclesiology is really based on that hierarchy. The whole thing is the Pope is Christ's vicar on, on earth. I was just hearing something about that this past week. Um, where on, on the Catholic radio where somebody was saying, how can you have church if you don't have a Pope? I mean, Protestants don't even have a church. Because how can you have a church if you don't have Christ on earth with you? <laughs> okay, so this is really interesting to try to figure out how they can say, oh, down with the Pope up with Catholicism, because, and they liked a lot of the things about Catholic theology, except all those things that have to do with the hierarchy, which is arguably what Catholic theology is based on. Anyway, that sympathy led Day to openly 
openly support people like Lenin and Mao Zedong and Sheikh Guevara, all of whom were violently atheistic communists. But she said, oh, they are all glowing examples of the love and brotherhood of Christ because they focus on the poor. Because Christ said, take care of the poor. And these guys focused on the poor because they love the poor, right? Okay, what's another argument here? Did they love the poor? Maybe, maybe. Maybe they had a developed love for the poor. What else? They hated the rich. They hated the rich? What's another way of looking at that? I agree. If you're going to get an army, how about the poor and downtrodden? It's like the first period. We even talked about that with Mao Zedong the other week with, with, with um, the Communist Party in China. It's like, we can mobilize millions by saying, do you enjoy being poor? No. Well, then let's take over the government. Okay. So... Yeah, they're focused on the downtrodden. That doesn't necessarily mean that they like or love the downtrodden. But beyond that, it's a question of going, what? they're murdering their own people. In fact, she even said, I admit that their ends meant the seizure of power and the building of mighty armies, the compulsion of concentration camps, the forced labor and torture and killing of tens of thousands, even millions. And yet, unfortunate though all that is, they really show the love of Christ because they take care of the poor. Let me strongly encourage you, and this works for both political liberals and political conservatives, stop and think about the bedfellows that you're, that you're having because they like the same thing that you like. You know, oh, we take care of the poor. Oh, we say we're Christian. Oh, we, do, we, we don't like abortion. You go, okay, do you like the entire platform? Is, are you just overlooking things because it's to your benefit to overlook it? So in the spirit of Christian communism, they said, Farming communities, what they called houses of hospitalities, which are basically homeless shelters, and they said, every day we need to show the love of Christ, which was a huge ministry during the Great Depression, setting up all these soup kitchens and all these uh, homeless shelters and things at a time when people were really, really struggling. Pardon me? A photograph. It's a creepy photograph, isn't it? Except you understand why the government's right. like... Except in many... In many ways, it's true that the United States still had a higher standard of living than most places in the world. It's just a large percentage of its people didn't enjoy that standard of living. This is the danger of saying, once you've got the middle class of things, you get a bunch of crazily poor people and a bunch of crazily rich people. And it just that gap keeps growing. Does that mean you have a low cost of living? Or a low standard of living? No, actually we've got a really high standard of living for the people who can afford it and a really low standard of living for that 20%, 40%, 90% of our population get that. By the 1960s, as an older woman, Day had become really saddened because she's like, I had this community vision, this communal vision, where like all good communists and Marxists, we would come together and love, and because that's always happened with communism and Marxism, right? Any community that does that just comes together and love and hugs a lot. But she's like, oh, we had this whole Christian love and, and equality thing, and by the time you get to the end of the 60s, it's like, how did this become a lot of sex and drug use? My, my, my communal take on things has become the hippie movement. And all these shelters that I come up with and all these, these communal farms where we're all going to work together in an agrarian paradise and love Jesus together. I got all these hippies that are having sex with one another and doing a lot of drugs and growing marijuana on our, on our farms. Is this what I wanted? I mean, she still thinks, that, she's like, oh, I, I still think it was the right idea. But this isn't, this isn't what I wanted it to be. She was proposed for canonization after her death. 
because of all of her work. Let's, let's make her Saint Dorothy. Which actually bugged most of her followers. Because they're like, but that's the power elite. That's the whole hierarchy. Wait, so if you, if you ever, if you ever want to see church hierarchy, read about the canonization process. What has to happen from the moment someone says, I think Brian should be a saint, to the time that, that Eric as Pope says, okay, Brian's a saint. It's amazing! This <laughs> I see, I knew that's what would happen. Eric's like, oh, I'm the nice Pope. You go ahead. And no, it doesn't work like that. I mean, it's an amazing number of hoops to, oh my goodness. It's an amazing number of hoops to jump through um, to do that. And so they were like, no, this is not cool. Even though her movement specifically remained steadfastly devoted to Marxism, um, and, and Marx's basic tenet of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. That's the, the, the core tenet of Marxism. That's, she kept putting that on plaques and stuff like that at every homeless shelter. She was like, that's the whole point. But there are lots of different versions of socialism out there. This is one version of socialism, Marxist socialism. Anybody think of any other versions of socialism? This is communal, let's all live on farms and Everybody own anything? Anybody think of any other versions of socialism? Okay, pardon me? Canada and England. Canada and England. Basically, government owning everything. That's a different version. 1933 is the same year that Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. And he's a socialist, right? Just like Marx and just like Stalin. Whoa, those three are completely different. Completely different versions of, of socialism. Western economies are in turmoil, they're falling apart, especially because of the Great Depression. The German economy in particular, because of the Treaty of Versailles, remember we talked about that? So this is, they're in horrible dire straits and they're like, somebody, please, somewhere, come and help us. We are so disgusted with our situation right now, we'll take anybody that we think will change things. So in nationalistic socialism, a national socialism that says, all right, how about we make sure that a strong central government, which includes everybody, owns everything. Everybody's going to own everything, and it's all going to be spread around by a strong central government. It's not capitalism. It's not let's all go live on farms and pick up your hoes together. It's, no, no, you can be you. You can own your business, all that kind of stuff, but all the capital, everything is technically owned by the government, and we make sure it's redistributed so everybody has what they need. That makes sense to people. They're like, Oh, that's great, because right now I don't got nothing. I mean, if, if communism with Mao Zedong and, and, and Lenin worked because they took the downtrodden people and they said, wouldn't you like to be in charge of everything? What if your entire country is downtrodden? Everybody. Everybody's destitute. It also made sense to this broken, shamed Germany that maybe it's not their fault. Maybe it's somebody else's fault. Hitler had been, as we talked about before, he had been in World War I, and he came out feeling very betrayed. He bought into uh, the idea that, the, that that alliance, that German-Austrian group that should have won. They were right. They were good. They were excellent soldiers. They should have won. And since they didn't win, since they lost the war, clearly someone else was to blame for it, right? I'm not saying you think that they should have won, but if you thought that there's no good reason why they would have lost. They had the, the ability, they had the moral rightness. Why did they lose? It doesn't follow. It does 
Because if you start with the basic premise that you should have won. The other side could have just had more money. They could have. They could, they could have gotten lucky. It doesn't lucky. matter if you're right in war. If the other side has more money and more resources, you lose anything. But what if God wanted you to be the winners? God himself wanted you to be the winners. I'm not disagreeing with you. I think he's wrong. But I think a lot of times, even, even people who would consider themselves strong Calvinists, will tacitly live going, surely this isn't what God wanted. You know, I, somebody's done something wrong if this happened in my life. If you're a devout, you know, no, you can take it so far, maybe not. But there was this urban myth that was going around Germany that they had been stabbed in the back. In fact, they called it the dagger thrust legend. They got stabbed in the back by Jews and Marxists and intellectuals and religious leaders back home. People who were not part of what it meant to be the devoutly nationalistic Germans. So, Jews, Marxists, intellectuals, everybody sits and goes, well, I'm an, first I'm an intellectual, then I'm a German. First I'm a Christian, then I'm a German. Actually, I think the, the government is set up wrong. Actually, we've always kind of held ourselves apart from, from you Gentiles. Anybody that wasn't pro-Germany was obviously the problem. They, 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 we, we got undermined from back home. So when, after the war, he was assigned to infiltrate the Socialist German Workers' Party, the more he heard them, the more he's like, I agree with these guys. This makes total sense. This fiercely nationalistic, anybody who is not pro-Germany is the problem. He's like, yeah, that resonates with me. So he designed a more striking symbol for the group because he was an artist, and he's like, no, I got a sense of this. What we need is pizzazz. What we need is something sharp. What we need is really good speakers, etc. And he changed the name to the National Socialist German Workers' Party just so that everybody knew what they were talking about. He's like, I want people to understand this is a very nationalistic, very patriotic sort of group. Now, there had already been a socialist democratic party in Germany, apparently portrayed by Paul. It looks kind of like Paul to me. Anyway, but, um, but there's already a nationalist, there's already a socialist democratic party that's been there for 50 years. And the popular German nickname for the party member, who is a Sozial Democrat, is a Sozi. Everybody in Germany called them Sozis, because you're a socio, a social democrat. So the English-speaking world adopted a similar nickname for the National Socialists. And the Nazis, yes. Now, Germans didn't really call them Nazis. In fact, they almost never called them Nazis. But everybody else called them Nazis, because they cut off the Sozi. Anyway, all right. So here's an extremely potent speaker, an extremely moving speaker. He was such a powerful speaker that nobody wanted to speak like him ever again. No, in all seriousness, you look at this, and when we look at these grand gestures and this, if you ever watch video of him speaking, from a modern perspective, we almost go, that looks ridiculous. No, that's exactly the way everybody spoke back then. He just did it amazingly well. He did it so amazingly well, and was so indelibly good at it, that pretty much every world leader since then has said either I don't want to look like Hitler and so I'm doing this differently or oh I so want to look like Hitler so I'm going to do it like that but there's a almost immediately by the time you get into like the 1950s world leaders do not speak like this at all because he was so good at it and they start getting violent and start attacking Jewish groups 
they formed the Sturm Abteilung units, uh, 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 units uh, the, the stormtroopers, which were paramilitary groups that enforced their dictates, right? Anything that the party wanted, these brown shirts came along and made it happen. So we said, they go, oh, those Nazis. Except that we need to realize pretty much every political party in Germany had their brown shirts. Most political parties in the United States had their brown shirts. Most political parties in England had their brown shirts. If you were a political party in the 30s, you had a paramilitary group that made sure that your security was okay. How else are you going to stand when all the other paramilitary groups are going to... Basic gang mentality. Why do the Crips exist? Well, because the Bloods exist. And we have to defend ourselves against them. Well, why do the Bloods exist? Because the Crips exist. We've got to defend ourselves against them. It's a different world. Anyway, what's interesting is, is that image of the Nazi stormtrooper is still a wonderful icon for demonizing your opponent today. It was really not hard, really not hard online to find this picture and find one using this picture demonizing Obama and using this picture demonizing the Republican Party. Because that's easy, right? If you just call the other side a Nazi, you win. Isn't that the way that works? All right, let's walk through this. 2008, let's just pretend for a moment. 2008, presidential candidate Barack Obama campaigned saying, we cannot continue to rely only on our military in order to achieve national security objectives that we've set. We've got to have a civilian national security force that's just as powerful, just as strong, just as well-funded. Right? We have to have an armed civilian force. You agree, right? Let's further say that Obama issued several executive orders that in times of emergency, FEMA could take over under martial law and suspend the U.S. Constitution. Let's also pretend that FEMA ordered armored personnel vehicles and its overarching parent organization, the Department of Homeland Security, began stockpiling millions of rounds of ammunition. And that they started graduating the first classes of the new FEMA Corps members in 2012 as a dedicated response unit. So help me out here. All that is true that I've just said. How comfortable are you in knowing that the executive branch of our government now has its own armed forces consciously trying to rival the forces that Congress has? The executive branch has its own. You're fine with that, right? Because they're not brown shirts. Because he doesn't dress like that. Right? It's not fascism if we do. How do you feel about that? You're saying there's two armies? I'm saying everything I've just said here is absolutely documentedly true. I mean, is that equivalent of two armies? Good for you. Because maybe you should back up and say, you know, FEMA's been around since 1971. It's not something that Obama came up with. Department of Homeland Security was created by Bush, and I don't think that those two agreed on many things. The ammunition was for the Department of Homeland Security's Secret Service, uh, transit... Uh, agents, uh, U.S. custom agents, all of which have been around for a long, long time. So the executive branch has had its own armed forces for a long time, right? Just don't normally think about it like that. But the executive branch is in control of the Secret Service. The executive branch is in control of the U.S. customs agents. That's all executive branch, armed forces. FEMA Corps people look like this. That Dedicated response unit is dedicated to responding to emergency situations. Their armed, armored vehicles are not armored 
I suppose you could use them any way you want. But they're not armored against you know, like gunfire. They're armored against hazardous rescue conditions. Whether FEMA and the FEMA Corps strike you as uncomfortably scary or wonderfully securing is much is very much a matter of effective propaganda, right? Everything I said about them is absolutely true. How do you take that? Does FEMA have the right to suspend the Constitution if they deem something an emergency? Yes. Are they under the Department of Homeland Security? Yes. Does Homeland Security have millions of rounds of ammunition and armored vehicles? Yes. Did Obama say that we need we need a civilian military presence, a security presence, I shouldn't say military, a civilian security presence that rivals the United States military presence and scope? Yes. Was he talking about creating a new military? That's up for debate. I would argue no. He's talking about creating this kind of a force. But it's still up for debate, isn't it? So how important then is critical thinking? Asking questions like Clifton. Is this something where you say, this is something dangerous, and we shouldn't just assume everybody's nice? Because there's an historical precedent for world leaders having brown shirt groups, right? But we also shouldn't listen to data points and say, I'm scared. Let me make decisions based on that fear. Should we? Because that scary sounding stuff leads to these really nice people doing really nice things. It's not scary. Also depends on what photograph you put, by the way. Because people are amazingly moved by photographs. You put a grumpy Trump or a smiley Trump. Put a grumpy Obama, smiley Obama. You put a grumpy Carter or a smiley Carter. You can change people's opinions just with a single photograph. And putting it in context. So stop and think. Which is, I think, kind of important. Anyway, the stormtrooper units began targeting German Jews, um, arguing that the Jews, since they hold all the money, because Jews tended not to invest with Gentiles or, or do usury with Gentiles, so they didn't get investments from Gentiles. So all this Gentile stock market going belly up, most Jews didn't have a problem. So while everybody else is starving, the Jews are fine. They go to their own delis, which are fine. They have their own bank accounts, which are fine. If you are starving and you recognize that your neighbor has food, you want it. And the fact that they are holding on to it while you're starving means something is wrong with them morally. So once the Great Depression hit, and the German responses, much like Hoover's responses, didn't do anything to fix it, Hitler began targeting farmers, the homeless, and war veterans, and the middle class, saying, you didn't do anything wrong, and all your money is gone. You didn't do anything wrong, middle class. You are hard workers, and you have no money for your children. You didn't do anything wrong, war veterans. We were in the right. We got stabbed in the back at home. You didn't do anything wrong, homeless people whose children are literally starving. You're not bad people, and we can get that back. How powerful would that be if everybody you know, just not you, but everybody you know is starving? So... 1933, he barely lost becoming president, but he was voted in as chancellor, which is basically this weak parliamentary chairman position. So President Hindenburg, he's still in charge. 
Hitler, he's just overseeing Parliament. I mean, it's, it's not nothing, but he's still overseeing, he still has to answer to Parliament, and he has to answer to Hindenburg and everything. But within a month, the Reichstag building, the, where the German Parliament, the Reichstag, meant, met, the Reichstag building burned, destroyed by arson. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, okay, no. Um, <laughs> but the Reichstag building was burned, and probably, some people, it would, it, man, the time frame works really well that it was done by the Nazis themselves. But it looks like it was probably a communist, which is really unfortunate for history, that this communist decided to say, if Hitler's going to become chancellor, by golly, I'm getting rid of the chancellery. I'm getting rid of that whole Reichstag. What did that do? Did that successfully say, oh, then the Nazis won't have power? Or does that Hitler say, what those communists are doing to us? So, Hitler called for martial law under emergency circumstances. We can suspend the Constitution because this is martial law. That's what martial law means. And obviously the communists are an uprising because we found legit-looking evidence that it was, a, it was a communist who did it. And then he asked Parliament to give it, his cabinet the right just for the next four years, and we'll put it down on paper, just for four years to enact laws without necessarily having to go through the Reichstag. Because you guys are in disarray. I mean, it took us forever even to get to this meeting so I could even ask for this. We're meeting in an opera house, and everybody is kind of bunkered in. Can we? There are going to be some things we need to do, like, immediately, without... With, just... Give me emergency powers for four years. And they said, okay, for four years. And, 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 and these are the powers with this. Just for expediency's sake. Vladimir Lenin said, there are no morals in politics. There's only expedience. A scoundrel may, even a scoundrel may be of use to us just because he is a scoundrel. What is expedient? That's all that matters. You can do anything if it's expedient. And that's what Hitler was going by. Of course, I also am a big fan of Teddy Roosevelt who said, no man is justified in doing evil on the ground of expedience. It's like, you don't get to do that. So, dueling interesting guys. Anyway, Hitler is now essentially in charge of everything. And he doesn't have to go through anyone. He just bypassed the president, and he bypassed the Reichstag. So he immediately goes about removing all opposition. He imprisons and or executes anybody who, who disagrees with him. Because he made it legal. He made a law that said that if you're wearing purple socks, I get to kill you. It didn't have to go through. I'm being facetious. He didn't make that law. But if, if, if I don't have to go through the Reichstag, and I am the duly elected chancellor, and I make it a law that if you wear purple socks, I get to kill you, the Reichstag told me that that is perfectly legal for me to do. And now it is legal because it is a law. And so therefore I can do it. By the time that, that the Reichstag, by the time that the president was able to figure out how far things had gone, Things have gone too far to do anything about it. Once Hindenburg died a year later, the presidency and the chancellorship were merged into the new single office of Führer. Leader, Chancellor of the Reich, it's all together as one office now. He's in charge of everything. Becomes absolute, unquestionable ruler of Germany just a smidgy bit over a year after getting this weak position, this tiny little weak political position. Now he's absolutely in charge of everything. Because he did it well. And because he knew how to play to people's fear.
Can you learn anything about that from nowadays? Not just about politics, but can you learn anything about that in terms of churches? Can you learn anything about that in terms of families? Can you learn anything about that? Can you maneuver people and manipulate them through fear? Absolutely. Is that healthy? Never. Yeah. Some now some of this um, in America. Pardon me. Yes, you did. Because no matter how long the conversation goes, eventually somebody gets compared to Hitler. Um, we in America tend to think the term martial law is inherently scary bad because it's all about suspending civil liberties, um, and that that's it's just inherently scary. But there are sometimes where martial law is a good thing. You go, this is chaos here. I'm going to suspend jumping through all the normal hoops, and I'm going to send people in to, to create order, and then we're going to walk away. There are various places that in World War II, Ike instituted martial law, and then stepped back afterwards and said, okay, now it's everything's back to normal. Ike did some things that Hitler did. Um, Hitler did some things, or, uh, Lincoln did some things that Hitler did. Um, and Lincoln's not perfect. Some of the things he did was arguably not cool. Other things he did, you go, mm. but like Lincoln had suspended habeas corpus. I mean, there are things that Lincoln did to 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 say to the Constitution for a brief period of time. Tennessee was under martial law, or half of it was. Right, for for an extended period of time, yeah. Um, but because because technically some areas were under martial law, that meant that he could do executive orders there, because the martial law means you're under the executive with that, which means they could do things like the Emancipation Proclamation which he couldn't do without Congress in the northern states, et cetera. So, I mean, there's some things that you can do because of that. So, arguably, yes. Part of it is how and why did you do this? Lincoln did that, I genuinely believe, arguably, to bring about order and to try to, to do good things, not because he was trying to amass power for himself. Hitler is definitely spinning things so that he could amass power for himself. Everything is maneuvered in terms of timelines for that. All right. He had a very unique take on religion. He had this very, this very uh, strong, warped, mystical version of religion. Are you familiar with Santeria? Um, Santeria is, is this weird mix of Catholicism and voodoo um, that you'll, you'll find in, in like Central America. Hitler did something the same way. A mix of Catholicism and Germanic Teutonic myths, so mixing Wotan and, and donor mix myths with the uh, uh, Wagnerian opera with Catholicism into this weird melange of mystical religion, i.e., where's the lost art? Yeah, I mean, all that stuff is like Hitler looking for a magical. Yes, actually, he had whole. Like, seriously, he had whole divisions that all they did was scour ancient texts and things for objects of power. So all the stuff that you get from like Thor or. Uh, uh, Captain America or Raiders of the Lost Ark, you... No, yeah, that was something that Hitler would have loved, which is why those movies work like that. Anyway, but in many, many speeches, he, especially his early ones, he presented himself as being extremely Christian. This is various sections from various speeches and writings. He says, I fell down on my knees and thanked heaven for my overflowing heart for granting me the good fortune of being permitted to live at this time. I am now, as before, a Catholic and will always remain so. And the founder of Christianity made no secret, indeed, of his estimation of the Jewish people. When he found it necessary, he drove those enemies of the human race out of the temple of God. My feeling as a Christian points me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. 
It points me to the man who, once in loneliness, surrounded by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were. Wrapping everything in very Christian terms. Which makes it complicated. Right? How do we learn about that? What, what can we learn from this in our time and context? Just because someone aligns themselves with Christianity doesn't, doesn't make it genuine. It doesn't mean they're not trying to play us. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you can take that a bunch of different ways. It could be that somebody is aligning themselves with Christianity because it's politically expedient. Let's get all Lenin about this. It could be that they align themselves with Christianity because they think they're Christians. And if you examine their faith, you go, I don't think you have a living faith at all. I don't know. But this made it complicated for people to know how to deal with them. Um, for instance, 1938, he announced the Anschluss, the connection. Anybody ever hear of the Anschluss? Where he says, we're going to reunify the German peoples. Austria has been sitting there by themselves for too long. They'll become part of our grand Germany, i.e., we're going to steal Austria. World leaders say, I don't think they want to be. And the Austrian leaders are like, I don't think we want to be. And Hitler said, let me make sure I I explain this. We're going to take Austria. You can be part of us, or you can be a conquered people. What would you like to be? And so Austrians are like, I guess we're going to elect some Nazis to our leadership so we can at least retain our own government. I guess. But part of Hitler's strategy was to appeal to Roman Catholicism. Do you remember that Austria has been really at odds with Roman Catholicism for centuries? Austria, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, has been the only truly Catholic, anti-Roman major power in the world. Remember from that whole Holy Roman Empire stuff? They've been extremely Catholic. But the Spanish were extremely Catholic, the French were extremely Catholic, and at any given moment were against Rome, but in general were pro-Roman. But Austria and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that's been anti-Rome for centuries. And so, Pope Pius XII decided that he's going to emulate that last pope in the last war and officially declare the church neutral where the Nazis are concerned. I'm not going to denounce anything Hitler does. And quite frankly, if he takes over Austria, I'm fine with that. If a pro-Roman Catholic takes over a country of an anti-Roman Catholic, I say yay. Because it's good for us, right? It does make sense, you know, in expedience, doesn't it? Now, he did help, during World War II, shelter, at least indirectly, shelter Jews. So it's interesting because he's remembered by some Jews as this active hero. Say, thousands of Jews by at least allowing them to be sheltered through the Catholic Church and stuff. Others see him as an absolutely passive monster. He said nothing against Hitler and and the extermination of Jews throughout the entirety of World War II. So is Pius a good guy or a bad guy? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Now, he did take the opportunity, though, during World War II to condemn what he saw as the true evils of the day. He spoke against communism and lay ministers and rationalistic science, the Freemasons, which he said is pretty much the basis of all apostasy in, in the world today, is because of Freemasonry. And immodest sw- women swimwear. I know! He talked a lot about that. So, I mean, there's this... Which is interesting, because you go, wait, so it's not like you're just going silent for a couple of years. You're issuing encyclicals all over the place. You're condemning things. Just 
not Hitler. You're condemning, you're condemning, now granted, swimwear radically changed, and we were, we're down to essentially like one pieces and stuff, as opposed to, you know, whole body suits and stuff when you're going swimming. But uh, you're, 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 you're writing all these encyclicals about this and nothing about genocide? Anyway, Hitler then said, you know, there are Germans in Czechoslovakia. We need to save Czechoslovakia from the Czechoslovakians. Um, so there are Germans over there, and so we're going to annex, annex that as well. And again, the world leaders are like, I'm a little uncomfortable. Neville Chamberlain, British Prime Minister, comes over and says, no, no, no. Hitler, let, I will fix this. I mean, everything that you could possibly imagine about a British stereotype, that's Neville Chamberlain. No, 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 no. We'll go fix this. And he, so he goes and talks to him, he's like, all right. If you agree to treat the Czechs with restraint, you're not going to bomb their cities and things. And if you agree that you will never, ever, ever go to war with England again, <laughs> I will convince the Czechs just to give up without firing a shot. And everybody's happy. And Hitler said, I agree. What a wonderful plan. Let me put my name to that. And I'm not kidding. Literally went back and started laughing with his buddies going, I can't believe he believed me. You kidding me? That's so dumb. Because Neville Chamberlain is just like, well, if we gentlemen's agreement, I mean, we shook hands on it. You know, whereas Hitler's like, expedience, sure, no, I'll never, I'll never fire a shot at you. You take it and go, ha, ha, turn around and go, bang. What? A paper is going to make me not do what I wanted to do. Chamberlain goes home to parades, huge parades throughout England, with people saying, "You've saved Europe." There will be never be a second world war because of Neville Chamberlain. Yes? Even if he, Hitler did agree to what he said he would do, he said he would never go to war against England. He didn't say he wouldn't take over the rest of Europe. How does, that, how does not But there's no more England, war! How does not attacking England mean there's no more war in Europe ever? Did you not track with. I'm going to go back to this again. Europe. There was no war taking over Czechoslovakia. Hitler hasn't fired a shot in, during the Anschluss or in taking over Czechoslovakia. We found a political way. Not a shooty-pointy kind of way, but a chatty-talky kind of way. And he promised he would never do anything to England. No more war. Hitler's happy. We're happy. Everybody's happy. The Czechs go, I'm not happy. But since they say it with a German accent, we all go, yeah, but you're basically Germans anyway. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Even though we've talked about it on multiple occasions, could you articulate to somebody the difference between Shiites and Sunnis? Or are they all just Muslims? <coughs> Does everybody know where Syria is? Does everybody know where the Jordan is? Does everybody know where, where exactly Morocco is? Or do we just tend to see them all as Middle East? You don't, you don't understand. Morocco and like Syria are like the opposite ends of you know, of North America from one another. And we tend to go, oh, Africa. For that matter, when we talk about Africans, yeah. just go, so are you talking about like the Spanish-speaking Moroccans, light-skinned people, or are you talking about the Zulu down here? When you say African, it's like, a, it's like an old Star Trek episode there. What's this planet like? Well, they're like this. Really? <laughs> Four billion people have one culture, one language. Amazing. Okay, Hitler then said, you know, there was this 
there was this corridor here uh, between German holdings that was ridiculously held by Poland. We just want to take that corridor, and so we'll just kind of annex Poland as well. But that's really, then we're done. Seriously. This is all we really need. Again, world leaders start going, no, we can't take Poland. But Hitler just signed a non-aggression pact with Stalin in Russia. Actually, Ribbentrop signs this non-aggression pact with Stalin in Russia, like a couple of days before they invade Poland. So let's agree we will never fight each other. Stalin says, I think that's a great idea. And so Hitler goes, by the way, I'm taking Poland. You're staunch ally. Well, Holden. <laughs> Years ago, Russia took out the Poland. So I don't know if you say Poland's an ally. But like, well, that's, that's our conquerage. You know, it's like, they took that. So what do you do if you're Stalin? Four days after you say you're not going to fight Hitler, and Hitler takes Poland, which technically isn't part of Russia. It's not part of the Soviet Union. It's just a satellite country that you like to play with every once in a while. What do you do? So the Soviets said, you know, it's probably easier to divide Poland than it is just to lose it. So tell you what, you can take like the western half of Poland, we'll take like the eastern half of Poland. We just promised we wouldn't fight you. You took something that we like, but the only way we get it back is if we actively fight you, which means we'd be declaring war on you, which means that our treaties are apparently meaningless four days after we make them. Oh, this is a political nightmare. Okay, take Poland. And Hitler, no, Chamberlain's not going to do anything about it. Chamberlain, uh, England has had a non-aggression pact with Poland for years. England and France are both technically allies of Poland. And so he's like, you're not going to do anything about it. You're just going to sit here and watch me do it because you're Neville Chamberlain. You're a stuffed shirt. So how would you summarize Hitler's basic take on world domination at this point? How do you get territory? How do you get power? Just take it. Just take it. No. Well, yes, but you don't just take it. Because if, if, I, if I just walk over and take something of you, you'll, you'll get it back. And if I'm bigger than you, you'll say, you hey, Caleb, Gary, help me get my stuff back. You tell them it's going to be good for them. <laughs> That's the best thing. If you can convince them, like playing a game of diplomacy, if you can convince them that it's good for you for me to take Munich, it's good for me. For, it's good for you if I take Warsaw this turn. Okay. What else? What else is he doing? Isn't he playing on the fears that they most of these places have kind of seen the devastation of the lot for the Great War, and they, in some ways, maybe without really warning it this way, the fear of having to go through that again, they're going to compromise and things. Well, that's exactly what's going on with Chamberlain, isn't it? And Hitler's like, you know, Hitler was even giving speeches in Germany. So it's not just talking, it's in Germany saying, I look forward to a long and lasting peace with Britain. You know, they are brothers overseas. We fought them in the last war, but they were the classy guys that we fought. We respected them. And so I had a wonderful meeting with Chamberlain. And all the British spies are scribbling down the notes of his, of his speeches and translating it to English and going, look, 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 this is working. So yeah, do you really want to be you're the prime minister that just got parades for saving Europe from war um, and saving England. Do you really want to be the prime minister that then says, I declare war on Germany? Hitler hasn't done anything against England. Hitler has made promises to you. Hitler's name is on a piece of paper, his gentleman's agreement that he's not going to be against England. Do you want to be the, the, the prime minister that goes against your name on that piece of paper? So what else is he doing there? 
There's fear. There's convincing them that um, it's it's probably best. Really, the Austrians and the German-speaking Czechoslovakians, it's probably best that they're connected to a strong German power like us. They kind of want us to help them get taken over. What else is he doing? He's also appealing to like cultural, historical roots of people groups. And he's also picking off the people the people around him that, that are less powerful. Like <laughs> he didn't start with England. Right. He starts with Austria. Which makes perfect sense. I mean Austria basically is just Germany light, right? Yeah. Isn't that the way you think of it? It's like Germany with later hosen. It's Germany but ton of musicy Germany. Edelweissy Germany. More Yeah. There's like there used to be a dominant world power. The Austrians? I don't think so. Yeah. But it makes total sense. And plus, we were their buddies in the last World War. And Czechoslovakia because they speak German there in that area. And Poland because they were blocking German. It makes sense. So yes, he's going to to cultural traditions. Are we are all part of the same culture, that means we're all on the same side, right? If you agree with any part of my political platform, if it means enough to you, agree with all my political platform, right? Right? Because we all agree that murder is bad. We all agree that the Bible is a good book that we really ought to follow. We all agree with that. We all agree you should drive on the right side of the road. We all agree that you should kick little old ladies. And we all agree that puppies are cute, right? My opponent thinks puppies are ugly. My opponent thinks you should drive on the left side of the street, even when other people are driving on the right side of the street. Is that the kind of America you want to live in? Can we rewind to that whole kick the little ladies thing? Because I don't think I agree with you on that. And apparently, you remember the other party, right? Why would you call yourself a biblical conservative? Didn't I start off by saying murder is bad? But apparently, you think murder is good. Didn't I say that the Bible is something we should follow? But apparently, you don't agree with me. Do you agree with me? You mean about, do you agree with me? Well, I don't agree with you, so you don't agree with me. Not about everything. Then apparently you're a murderous anti-Bible person, right? No, so you do agree with me. Well, yes, thank you very much. Tell me that's changed in the last seven years. Tell me we don't do that now. Tell me you don't have people supporting Hillary Clinton who despise parts of Hillary Clinton's platform, or people supporting Donald Trump who despise parts of Donald Trump's platform and character. But of course you're going to support him because he's not or she's not the other person whom you despise maybe even a little bit more. We do this all the time because we are desperate as humans to not think critically. We're desperate as humans to not think complexly. And so yes, he is playing on that very much. This idea of, I'm going to, I'm going to, you are desperate, really, really, as a nation, you are desperate, as a culture, you are desperate to not think complexly. So I will give you this very simply. I will just hand it to you on a platter in very simple terms. And you'll either eat it up or you won't. And I will I will sign whatever I need to sign. I will promise whatever I need to promise. Because then, like any good con man, I demonstrate a con man, confidence man. Is it that you're, I try to get you to put your confidence in me? Technically, it's I put my confidence in you. I sit there and I say, you know what, tell you what, I will... I will help you out, and I'm sure you would do the same thing. You go, well, then let me help you out. And I go, no, I don't need your money. You go, no, let me give you money. I'm like, well, okay. I, I, I am actually abusing your good character because I'm going to say we men of good character are going to do the right thing. I don't plan to, but I just made you 
plan to. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's also intentionally polarizing the people, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, which, which we do again today. Go ahead. Yeah, well, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't leave a lot of room for, for nuance, you know? It's like, so, so are you German or are you not? You know, yeah, I'm a German-speaking Austrian. Are you German? Are you a Teutonic person, or are you some foreigner? Right. You don't. Yeah. So, uh, what's interesting is, amazingly, Chamberlain says, "I'm sorry, we have to honor our commitments to Poland." And I think I made a mistake with this guy. I think he's not a good man. Took him forever. He was very slow about it. He was extremely reluctant. But he eventually was like, "We have to declare war on Germany." which brought in France, because France also said, well, England's going to war, we're going to war, because we also support Poland, we don't want to look like the bad guys here. And now suddenly World War II begins, as everybody starts entangling all their alliances, just like they did in World War I. But this one, quite a bit nastier than World War I. That's what we'll pick it up next time. But help me out here. How would you summarize what we've seen from, from that, that get-go, with the stock market crash, to the Catholic workers' movement, through... Hitler's rise. Anything that you see going here? Yeah. People reacting to very desperate situations. If you are desperate enough, you will do maybe ill-considered things. You'll march on Washington and demand things that, quite frankly, will destroy the, the, the entire economics of the, of the country. If people are marching on Washington demanding that you destroy the economics of the country, you'll send the military out against war veterans. You just go, oh my goodness, this is horrible. You'll say, we need to embrace Mao Zedong and, uh, and Lenin and Che Guevara because they're good Christians. At least I, wanna, I really want to think of them as Christians because they more or less agree with some of the things I think are really important. Yes, Che once said he found that he really liked killing people. But, really, really, uh, he's kind of like a Christian. Um, the whole thing with Hitler. I mean, over and over, it's like, there are going to be unscrupulous people that play on people's emotions. But there's even going to be nice people that make bad decisions because they're thinking so desperately. In all of this, it would be really nice if instead of people either cursing the darkness or people blaming other people for it, if people came along and said, you do realize there's a hope that goes beyond just these circumstances. It's bigger than the circumstances. Yeah. You'll you accept stuff that has partial truth. In fact, sometimes, well, Hitler said you make a lie big enough, people will believe it, if you include truths in it that they can latch on to. So, yeah. So, giving people actual truth. Now, maybe I'll, I'll end with this, though. But this also means that even conscientiously, we need to be careful that we don't be mostly truthful with things. Because... If we're just mostly truthful, and I mean, not everything we say is entirely truthful. You go, people will buy it, and you just lied. That's not cool. So be conscientious about that. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you that you are so much bigger than our world context. I thank you that no matter how good or how horrible our leaders are, you're the true leader. You're the true hope. You're the true light. And I pray that you help us not to make decisions based on 
this group's propaganda or that group's promises or this person's seeming character or that person's bad character. I pray, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to nail ourselves to the truth that never changes. Help us to be your lights to a darkened world. In Jesus' name, amen.